episode 20 with Graham Nichols. Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing, and assistance to each other. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you connect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matters, I have a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, do your own research, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by the Finnish fusion artist Axel Kessler. The song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is Graham Nichols, who spoke with me from London, where he was under lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic, like so many of us around the world at this time. This situation of being cooped up at home in some way provides a great incentive to pursue out-of-body travel and the freedoms of experience that offers. And Graham is a perfect source of guidance for this experience. He is the director of the Out-of-Body and Near-Death Experience Society in the UK, as well as a lecturer and advisory board member of the Ryan Research Center in the US. He's a leading practitioner and researcher into out-of-body experiences. He is also an installation artist exploring psychology and consciousness through specially designed technological environments. His installations have led to immersive technology designed to induce OBEs and later his infraliminal sound recordings which help bring about the vibrational state, a key stage of the OBE, in the majority of those who use them. You can purchase downloads of those recordings on his website. Graham is the author of Avenues to the Human Spirit and Navigating the Out-of-Body Experience, and the latter is the book we discussed today. One of the things I really appreciate about Graham's approach is that it is very scientific in the true sense of the word. He seems confined neither by long-standing esoteric teachings nor by materialist science, but approaches the phenomenon of the OBE, or astral projection, with the mind of a true explorer, collecting data and looking for those aspects that can be replicated and find support in multiple sources across time. Graham also emphasizes the importance of veridical out-of-body experiences. These are experiences where we obtain data that can later be verified and that we could not have obtained in any way other than either an out-of-body experience or perhaps some other kind of form of psychic perception. Among other things, we discuss healthy and unhealthy skepticism, the kind of fears that can stop us from consciously leaving our body, the benefits of doing so, and how to go about generating the experiences. If you've been following this podcast, you will know that we keep coming back to out-of-body experiences, simply because they've been an important part of the spiritual experience of many of my guests, as well as myself. They are, after all, the key experience 
that can give us deep inner certainty of our life beyond the physical and empower us to follow our spiritual growth free from dogmas or cultural restrictions. Graham really embodies this form of spirituality and offers a lot of insight into this crucial experience. And so I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, so Graham, thank you so much for joining me. You're um, welcome. It's good to be here. And, um, you know, I was really, I was thinking uh, quite a bit about how to start this because uh, there I've seen, you know, looking at your work and watching a number of your YouTube talks, there is so much we could talk about and we haven't spoken before. So normally I would actually start with um, kind of a, you know, a backstory of how you got into the field of out-of-body experience and so on. But I, I, I've seen that there's actually a lot of that information. You've spoken about that a lot. You know, there's a lot of information about that available online. And I would really encourage people to go and check that out because I think you have a, a, a really interesting story and, and many interesting experiences to share as to how you got there. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, like you've been uh, having lucid out-of-body experiences since childhood. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I loved your stories of, of being a young teenager and, and getting involved of, with... Um, just the way you studied and applied yourself um, to learn more about this phenomenon and really, from a really early age, you know, applied a scientific inquiring mind to, to all of this. And, mm. uh, and that seems to have culminated in your most recent book, Navigating the Out-of-Body Experience. And so that's really what I'd like to, to focus on today because there's so much rich information just in that. Okay, great. So, uh, I guess to start with, um, I'll read the definition from your book that you have for the out-of-body experience, um, and then it would be great if you could provide a bit of a, a sort of a, like an anatomy of the experience yeah, for someone listening who maybe has never had one, or maybe they've had experiences and they're not sure whether that was an out-of-body experience. So, okay. so in your book, you define the out-of-body experience uh, like this. An out-of-body experience involves coherent feelings, impressions, and sensory awareness of total separation from your physical body in the form of an independent consciousness, while it's usually still being able to see and reason. The experience often involves perceiving the body from above, travel over distances, and sometimes interactions with others. The OBE can also lead to what appear to be other levels of reality. The OBE is generally described as being as real as everyday reality. Yeah. So that's the general definition. We're having these very real experiences. But could you perhaps give, uh, you know, sort of a descriptive account of how these experiences might look? And I, I think there's quite a variety they can have. So maybe, you know, sort of a, a sense of a couple of different possibilities. Um, yeah, I think in I think in my case, I 
I tend to these days have experiences where I will find myself, um, and when I say myself, it is almost like myself rather than a sense of a body or a or or a feeling of being physical at another place. It's like my consciousness has literally arrived at another location. I don't tend to have very much of a sense of leaving the body anymore. I did early on, which I think is related to our belief structures about ourselves and maybe even influences from outside about how we understand the world. And I think that tends to break down over time, which we can get into more if you want to talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. But it's, uh, I think there's often an evolution in the experiences. So my early experiences would probably be char- characterized more as a sort of almost physical thing. Um, it felt literally like coming out in a physical or energy form, um, as we kind of mentioned briefly before we started. Um, but then over time, I think as my fears and as my belief systems about the experiences changed, I found that I would, it would be much more fluid and it would be much more consciousness based. So I would find myself, for example, even in another country or, um, very, very far from my physical body when I first become aware of where I am. Um, and often it would feel like being a traveling awareness, some kind of consciousness. I'm, I'm even moving away from using the word out of body experience because I think it puts too much emphasis on the body. I'm starting to move towards calling it an independent consciousness experience, which sort of alludes to the definition you just read. Um, because I think it is almost being um, your consciousness is just independent from the usual ways that you function in the world. Um, and you're able to function in a different way, independently of the usual structures and laws that that you experience on a day-to-day level. So, so I think that's kind of... independent of the physical or independent of the body? Well, or, independent of... broader than that, right? Even broader than yeah, that. Yeah, independent even of the normal laws that that maybe govern us you know because for example there's this thing that in our body experiences we seem to float we seem to usually drift through the air so even the sense of like gravity that we usually experience is different Um, i mean because for example if it was just say a complete replica of our physical body and we were just duplicated in some way you might expect in that sense that we would still be physically grounded gravity would still have an effect but in these experiences it doesn't so there's even the sense of gravity or the laws of physics to some degree are altered Um, time seems to be different movement seems to be different across distances so it's a it's bigger than just being out of the body it's a it's sort of it's a completely different framework of how we experience the world yeah so i think that's that's where i'm kind of starting to explore more i think i think there's a lot of assumptions maybe that we need to start to dig into and explore yeah look and i'd love to dig into some of those with you uh in a moment because you raised quite a few interesting points just then but just just going back to the experience so so you would say right now for example you you would lie down maybe apply some kind of technique which we'll also touch on later on i hope some techniques and then kind of instantaneously without much of a sense of 
separation from a body. It's like your consciousness then becomes aware at some other location. Is that how you? Is that sort of what happens for you these days? That's that's what happens now. Yeah, um, it sometimes happens that I have more of a sense of leaving the body, but it's um, very rare now. It's sort of very yeah, very rare. I think it was probably six years ago or something that I last had that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a very it's it's almost more of just a shifting of consciousness now, which I I think relates more to um, what I think is the actual nature of the experience. Um, I, th- I think there's more of a sort of construct that we experience early on, and as our as our reliance on a sense of being human, in this sense of we need a body to be human and all of that, um, that sen- tends to diminish over time i think or we need Mm. we need that less so it seems to disappear but but actually when we look at the figures um in actual studies of large groups of people and what they experience in an out-of-body experience it's not that common to have a body actually it's it's commonly talked about in the esoteric literature but actually um it's much more common to experience something else like a traveling awareness, a sphere, um, something like that. Uh, it's, it's only, I think it's around, depends what study you look at, but took between 30, 40% of people have a body. So that means that, you know, you're talking 70, 60, 70% don't. And, And what would be those studies? What, what are some of the studies that explored that? Um, you can look at the work of Carlos Alvaredo, for example. Um, he's probably, in terms of academic research into OBEs, he's probably the leading person doing that kind of work. And he has reviewed a lot of the other studies that are out there. So if you go to his work, you'll find all the other various different studies. Celia Green did did quite a lot of work in, in the past as well. But Carlos Alvaredo is the one who's doing the most current research looking at all of those kinds of things and so i i reference his work a lot in in my work and he did a recent study in in scotland for example where he um uh, collated lots and lots of references to different people's out-of-body experiences and asked them questions what did you experience how did it look this kind of thing Mm. and then and then broke it down into percentages, what percentage of people had this kind of experience. So if you go through all of it, the hundreds of different, there's probably something like 10, 12 key studies, each of which has hundreds of people in the study. So when you sort of break it down, you get statistics of how common different features are. So some some features are... Um, commonly talked about in the more sort of esoteric astral projection literature, but when you look at the research, they're not actually as common as as you might get the impression from the esoteric writings. So that's yeah. why I think it's important to look at what people really experience rather than what people claim they experience. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I, again, I'd like to just quote a little passage from your book there. Uh, where you say the more you're open to allowing the experience to take its own form, the better. The more you try to define it or build up expectations, the more you limit yourself in a way that will probably be unhelpful. 
And I guess that that speaks to what you're just saying, right? If we have strong ideas from, say, the esoteric literature about how it must look, then we're kind of building up yeah. something that we're very likely to to live into in a way. Well, it's coming from first-hand experience because that's basically what I did. Um, so I, I kind of went through this process myself, um, where I was I started working with an, with a teacher called Douglas Baker when I was. I think I first worked for him when I was about 14, something like that, 15. Um, uh, he basically gave me my first weekend job. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was selling books and helping set up his lectures on astral projection and stuff back then. Um, and he would he would often sort of tutor me and give me advice and kind of, uh, you know, suggest things that I could do in my own kind of work. And over time, I started to realize that a lot of the things he was saying didn't really match with my experiences. And then the more I learned about other people's experiences, the more I realized that, okay, it maybe wasn't fitting with their experiences either. Um, So I think that was the beginning of me starting to question some of those ideas. And and I I think it, it kind of goes in trends. You get different sort of ideas of, about what the outer body experience is that tends to be like popular at a particular time like at the moment the link with lucid dreaming seems quite popular and yeah. then it it'll probably shift to something else you know or like a few years ago everyone was like connecting dmt experiences with uh with near-death experiences even though when you dig into it the the details and the and the similarities are quite weak, but you know the ideas become popular and then they get spread. But mm. I think we have to take a step back from these things and dig into the information and say, well, okay, is that really the case? Is that really what's going on? And then try and get to the the truth of it. Um, I mean, in terms of you, you mentioned lucid dreaming, and I, I guess one of the things that I know I've often been asked is, well, how do you know what you're experiencing isn't just a dream? Um, And when you mention, um, for example, not having a body, when I think about uh, my dreams, I very rarely experience myself in an embodied way. I usually experience myself as kind of observing a kind of a film in some... Mm, It's interesting. I always have a body. (laughs) Okay. but how, how do you distinguish uh, uh, dreams from from the out-of-body experiences? It's not even really a question um, to me. They're totally different experiences. I mean, I wrote an article on this, 17 differences, um, to try and make it easy for people. But, um, well, the first one is I'm not asleep. That's a pretty big one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh i mean what do you mean your your body your body would be asleep though or no my body's not asleep no and i don't go to sleep to induce obese so so uh, do you have awareness of your body i don't have awareness of my body no but it's not asleep because i've had it monitored um so so if someone comes um, into the room what what do they see your body doing i look more like i'm in maybe like a deep meditation or something like that. Um, 
for example, we've all seen someone when they're asleep, their mouth sort of often drops drops open in a particular way, their breathing changes, they might snore, all of these kinds of things. That doesn't happen. I don't experience rapid eye movement. Um, so that's another distinction. Mm. Um, that's that's all been studied as well. So I'm not just referencing my own experiences here. People like D. Scott Rogo. If if people want to get into this more, they look at the article on my website. Yeah. But um, yeah, we can put a but yeah there's that. a. I don't want to talk too much about this because it's sort of a tiresome subject, and it's it's very difficult to really. It's a bit like if I said to you, "How do you know you're not dreaming right now?" Um, you can't prove it to me that you're not dreaming right now. Yeah. Um, so, it, so it's sort of, it's one of those impossible questions in one sense, but then at the same sense, I think we do clearly know the difference between when we're dreaming and when we're awake, you know, in 99.9% of cases. So I think that's what it sort of comes down to with this as well. But if we it, to, to go beyond that and to get into the science, so we've got the fact that it feels in every way completely different. And then we've got the fact that the science also confirms it. So there was a study in Canada, for example, quite recently, just a few years ago, where they studied a, a girl there who had out-of-body experiences and they looked at her brainwaves in, in an fMRI scanner and clearly showed that what what she was experiencing was a sensory experience of being beyond the body, but but it was not consistent with the brain waves you would expect when someone was asleep. So yeah. there's that kind of research. Then there's EEG research that was done in the past, more like the eighties and sort of and and sixties even, which also show a difference between the types of brainwave patterns that people are experiencing and what they would experience in a dream or a lucid dream. So, but then it's further confused because then then you get people who are lucid dreaming and they're calling it an out of body experience. So then that, that really confuses things. So that's an unfortunate turn of events in the last decade or so. Well, I think, and I think it might also happen the other way around sometimes, right? That people are having, out-of-body experiences but uh have resistance to accepting that as a possibility and call it lucid dreaming i think that's less common i haven't really encountered that very much i think when people are having out-of-body experiences in that in that sense they tend to be quite uh categorical about it um but yeah it's more the other way around i think that's more common yeah, I mean, I, look, I know for my I mean, the reason I was asking it, I guess I was hoping for some sort of um, to help people that might be having out of body experiences, but are uh, calling it dreams because of, the, of you know missing a reference point. And I, that was my experience when I first um, ventured into this space. Is that I, I just used the label dreams for a long time because I didn't know anything about OBEs for a while. Mm. Um, and it just was a way to make sense of it. Well, I would say um, there are more consistent features. I mean, like I said, I think the best thing to do is if people are having those questions, just look at the article I wrote um, because it's too much really to get into. Yeah. Here. We'll spend yeah. the whole hour talking about yeah. it. Um, but but basically it's that the features are are very different as well. There's, the the kind of reality experience you have in an OBE is very consistent, whereas with a lucid dream, reality is much more malleable and, you know, 
um, anything can happen and that kind of stuff. So that's quite a good rule of thumb um, to kind of go by. But I, I do think if you're having an experience from a sleep state, it becomes much more tricky um, to to kind of know exactly or, or to be very sure of what's what's going on. Whereas if it's from a waking state, it's it's more reliable on that level. So that's why I favor waking state experiences because they do have more of a um, a consistent objectivity to them. Yeah. Now that's an interesting distinction that you make in your book and, and you, you know, give people sort of a, a little quiz to explore what, uh, what avenue might be better for them, waking state or sleep experiences, right? Which I thought was really mm. interesting. Um, you talk about the scientific method and the importance of applying that to the understanding of, um, uh, well, let's call it independent. Was it in, independent uh, experience? Independent consciousness experience. Independent consciousness experience. Let's let's use that term. Independent consciousness experiences, and um, in particular, you talk about the objective evidence from remote viewing and near-death experiences. And I just thought it might mm. be interesting if you could just outline a, a briefly why that is so relevant to understanding um, the independent consciousness experiences. I, I think that we're moving towards an understanding where the type of experience that, that an independent consciousness experience, or we can call it an ice, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that that kind of experience has um, a multi-sensory quality to it. So we're, we're, we're experiencing movement, visuals, sound, um, a sense of uh, sort of um, feeling, if you like, kind of uh, some kind of um, kinetic aspect to it. So there's, there's a few different levels. You don't tend to have smell or anything like that very commonly but it is in rare instances described um but basically uh sight movement sound are the sort of dominant uh senses and what i'm starting to consider and what i was uh alluding to in the book when i wrote that was this idea that when you look at something like remote viewing or you look at something like telepathy we tend to break them down we tend to say okay here's a psi or a psychic ability psi is the more scientific term so i use psi um psi is it is just a sort of generic way of saying psychic really um but without implying that we know what that means it's just a sort of neutral term um so basically something like telepathy and precognition and remote viewing they're all divided into categories. So they're three, they're considered like three different things in the way we communicate about them in our language. But in actual fact, I think that really they're probably all part of the same ability. They're all different sensory aspects of a bigger, um, a bigger picture, if you like. So I tend to think now that an out of body experience is when you have activated all of your sensory experience all of your psi sensory experience. Um, so you go into an immersive um, multi-sensory psi experience. And that's essentially what I think is probably going on with an out-of-body experience or a, 
ice experience. So um, that's why I think things like psyabilities are important um, because something like remote viewing is a way of um, using clairvoyance. It's basically a clairvoyant ability predominantly. Um, but remote viewing is actually just a protocol. So it's a, it's a methodology for applying clairvoyance and getting better results with it, um, which was developed by the military, US military. Um, so it's got a particular structure to it um, to get consistent results. So it's working with the limitations and the sort of benefits to try and get the best results that you can. I think that's sort of basically what you're doing with remote viewing. Um, if you push that further and you go into a deeper experience, then it will often become something like an out of body experience. But the difficulty is then the controllability of the experience might go down. Um, that's often the case that the deeper and more powerful the experience, the less controllable it, it often is, which is why I think the laboratory experiments without body experiences have sort of happened less and they've moved more towards remote viewing telepathy and these kinds of abilities that can be more consistently demonstrated in a scientific way. So mm. it's, it's a bit like how in other areas of science you might chop something into little pieces and put it into a Petri dish to, to analyze it. It's almost like we're doing that with these um, consciousness experiences, these psi abilities we're trying to sort of categorize them down so that we can more consistently study them. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's what's essentially happening. But I think the relationship with our body experiences is that a full out of body experience is just a, a way of using all of your psyabilities all at once and being completely immersed in it. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And I really, it's a really interesting distinction. Um, there is, as you say, with the remote viewing, it was done by the um, American military and there's some really good document evidence about its effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And I guess the same goes for the near-death experience, right, with the, the work from, I think, Pim Van Lommel's, who you talk about. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry um, I didn't go into yeah, the near-death. But, uh, but I, I like the way you point out. I mean, there's there's been various attempts at studying um, uh, controlled studies of... of um, out-of-body experiences, uh, starting with Charles Tart and going onwards. But I, yeah. I think the results were pretty mixed, right? It was whether it was trying to have a, like fly-ins with people coming in and reporting on something in a closed room or, or other forms of getting information. There was uh, far less compelling than the remote viewing results. Um, I think more the issue was sort of Charles Tart's results. I mean, there's the famous... Um, Miss Zed case, um, yeah. for example, that the results were actually very positive for our body experiences, you know, hugely impressive. But the problem was the controls placed around the actual research and a lot of skeptics, you know, rightly really um, criticized how controlled the experiment was. Um, but the the thing is there what there was other research as well there was Carlos Osis for example um who did quite a lot of research um he he was a latvian researcher um 
There was also um, Janet Lee Mitchell, um, who actually inspired me when I first got into this area. The first book I ever read was her book, um, which was a scientific study of out of body experiences. So there has been other research, and now as well, um, there's more there's more recent research happening in Italy. So there is there is um, there is stuff happening, but it's just that. Um, I think it's it's been sort of seen as a as an area that can't be studied or that or that people aren't interested in studying it because it's hard to to create statistical information on it because it's quite a big effort to um, to manage to get someone to have an out of body experience when you want them to have it yeah. and then to be able to get to a target and then also to be able to describe what they see in a consistent way so to do that on a day in day out basis to get good results um it's it's very very difficult to do that so that i think is why so few researchers have really gone into that in recent years it's really just been in the last um you know it, it was more really in the sort of 80s and whatever that they focused on that whereas now the research has been more on yeah on things like remote viewing and and telepathy and mm. that kind of thing the study i did quite recently with the Rhine research center it was sort of 12 14 weeks of 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 uh, experiments um it was based on the idea of remote perception so remote viewing you you could do it in a standard remote viewing format or you could do it in a in a more um obe format it was kind of up to you really um so we did a that they would set the experiment up remotely in the us uh at their lab um the rhine center and i at the time was in estonia and i was basically trying to remotely perceive the targets that they were setting so we you know we did a whole like i say 14 weeks non-stop basically every week um study like that so uh, and we got positive results for it so there's uh there is research being done on these kinds of things but very there's very few out-of-body people willing to do it i think i'm basically the only one um and there's also very few labs that are kind of open to doing that kind of thing as well unfortunately yeah okay so even i mean i guess that means even if you do have positive results um uh i think people like charles tart and dean radin have talked about how much uh more evidence it seems to be required for these sort of results to be taken seriously mm. um, just because of the nature of the the subject matter well i did ask i did write to charles tart and i asked him why he hadn't pursued the outer body area since um since the miss said case um but he just said that he got interested in other areas basically yeah so okay. so and dean radin i think is a bit like what i was saying he focuses more on micro PK. I took part in Dean Radin's uh, micro PK psychokinesis experiments. Um, so that's a, that's sort of an area that he is interested in because he's trying to find out. I believe. I mean, I, you know, I'm 
speaking for him here, but I, I think that his focus is now is to try and find where that interaction between physical reality and psi abilities actually is. So because a lot of the theories put forward an idea that it's something to do with quantum effects, I think that's why his experiments are focused on trying to psychically influence quantum effects. So right. the experiment yeah. I took part in was based on trying to influence the randomness of a interferometer, basically a, a device firing photons um, through the double slit experiment, the famous double mm -hmm. slit experiment. So basically I had to try and psychically influence that. Um, that's kind of Schrodinger's cat experiment, right? The double slit experiment? Yeah, kind of, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um, and look, I think, I, I guess the take home message from, from what you just shared and also um, I, I saw in a couple of your uh, videos online, you know, that you have a number of, I think you call it ver veridical out-of-body experiences. So experiences mm. where there is some evidence uh, afterwards where you can you can say uh, uh, that, you know, you can actually link your experience. You, have, you, you talked about a, a premonition you had about the, the Soho uh, bombing and you talked about um, identifying an address later on, those kinds of things. There are, there are mm. certainly experiences um, where really the most straightforward explanation is that there was a genuine uh that it was a genuine experience of consciousness obtaining data right in a non in a non-physical state yeah um i i think i haven't been able to come up with an alternative explanation for how those those experiences you just mentioned how they could have happened in in another way i mean you could just say like it's coincidence like extraordinary coincidence i think that was how um one skeptic kind of put it to me um and that's it's possible but the thing is when you when you when you've had also multiple other experiences if it was just one experience of an extraordinary coincidence let's say that's one thing but when you're having multiple experiences throughout your life that have that point to the same thing it's how improbable does it have to be you know how i mean i'm sure those skeptics wouldn't accept that kind of probability if you were dealing with you know a crime or something yeah you know yeah. if someone said oh yeah you know oh i just happened to be there and i just happened to you know like 15 times in a row or something you know i don't think anyone would reasonably accept that but because I, really yeah. they're invested in not believing it then it then you know they're willing to accept ridiculous statistical odds you know yeah absolutely and, and look i really enjoyed your discussion of skepticism in your book and i i wanted to touch on that because in a sense uh you know you talk about a, a healthy and an unhealthy form of skepticism so mm. you know maybe you could just expand a bit on on those two um well i, I think skepticism is a healthy thing and I, I i like i was saying right from the beginning i think it's it's very good to analyze and get into the data and say what is really going on you know what what does the data suggest about these kinds of things but um i think what what you tend to i think skepticism 
in general you can you can look at it in any area you know if you look at sort of people who believe the earth is flat or something or people who you know make claims skeptical about any area of of research or whatever they tend to be people who are not actually involved in the field of study that's the first thing then the next thing is they don't tend to actually be doing any independent like original research which is you can see that with the majority of the skeptical community i mean someone like james randy who's sort of the figurehead of the skeptical movement has no scientific qualifications at all as far as we know has no qualifications at all Um, i think he was a stage magician wasn't he and he was a yeah he was a stage magician and then became sort of a professional skeptic um but interestingly if you had someone in of that type of person on the opposite side of the coin instantly the skeptics would criticize him for not having scientific qualifications or something like that you know so it's 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 interesting how if the person's saying what they agree with then it's then it's fine that he makes scientific claims and claims that his organization is an educational organization although as far as we can tell doesn't seem to do very much educating and all of this kind of thing um so it becomes very tricky because you're kind of dealing with someone who is making all these statements but why should we focus on that person and and my my attitude is always like you know just listen to the people in the field i'm not even i'm saying not even saying listen to me you know listen to the scientists listen to the experts in this particular field and that's what we should do in any area of science you know if you want to know about physics listen to a physicist if you want to know about you know um parapsychology then listen to a parapsychologist not a stage magician who you know is invested in in debunking and criticizing anything that doesn't sort of agree with his worldview yeah has um, created in fact a whole identity around that really yeah and and i so i i think that's what i would say is unhealthy about that kind of skepticism is it actually limits science it actually undermines it because mainstream scientists will maybe be aware of james randy take someone like richard dawkins they're getting you know he's a biologist he is a proper scientist but he's getting his information from someone like james randy um and then he's accepting what that person says rather than actually looking at the science rupert sheldrake for example who's a scientist i've worked with directly i know him personally um we did experiments together i organized a, a range of experiments for him um when Dawkins went to see Rupert Sheldrake. Um, Dawkins said he didn't want to look at the evidence. He just sort of dismissed it um, without without looking. So right. Rupert Sheldrake said, "Well, then I can't I can't do this interview. I can't I can't engage with you." So that kind of thing is obviously unhealthy. We have to engage with the actual science, and I engage with the skepticism with the skepticism and the skeptics. I listen to what they say. I read their information. I debate them on occasion. If people want to see me debating a skeptic, I debated Susan Blackmore on a radio show. So there's a uh, a really good example of me um, 
addressing kind of her concerns and many of the concerns i agree with as well you know many of the things skeptics say are are true and valid and we we should listen to that but then we shouldn't allow it to limit scientific research i think that's where i come from with that yeah yeah that's i mean it's a really fine line as you say it can really enrich our focus and it can help us to question assumptions that we might carry from from just the, the historic baggage that comes with all this this material uh, or it mm. can be kind of almost like another uh, religious persecution of um of free thought so yes yeah. it's, it's an interesting line and on on so so at this point you know before we got before we started recording we had a chat about the energy body and i i guess i think this would be a good place to talk about that because that's uh seems to be an area where you're applying your own skeptical principles, as you said, following the, the, the evidence. Um, and having talked a bit now, I, I suppose I just want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing because I, I appreciate you've already indicated that you don't really think that we have what people might call the astral body. Um, mm. But um, when, when I was talking about the energy body, I was thinking of... Um, uh, what the in Chinese sort of ideas they might call qi, the body, you know, the the, the meridians that we have um, in Chinese medicine, at least. Um, uh, so that kind of people might also call it prana in the in the Hindu approach. Um, the kind of energy that gets worked with in qigong, tai chi, um, prana, sure, yeah, yeah, like those kinds of things. So. I gather you. Uh, so I'm not sure if that was also what you were talking about when you meant that—that that you don't think we have that, or. Um, yeah, I, I I'm not convinced at this point that that there is an energy like that. Yeah, chi, prana, ki. Um, well, I guess in in the esoteric framework that we get the word astral from the theosophical framework, which is really where that derives from. They would have called that ether. So they, yeah, you know, the, the etheric, etheric body. Yeah. The etheric body comes from that concept as well, which they equated loosely with prana and chi and etc. So, um, I think it's a, it's a framework that's, that kind of works in the sense of it seems quite intuitive, but then at the same time, um again it's it it becomes tricky because um can we sort of detect it how what do we mean by it how deep does it go um there are some scientific frameworks that i've talked about with physicists that would seem to allow for something like that for example hidden sector matter from string theory if if string theory turns out to be correct um hidden sector matter could basically result in some kind of um, some kind of replica body of some form. This is my understanding from talking to some physicists who are into um, the string theory framework. So, um, but beyond that, I I think it's very it's a very tricky thing to work out. Then when we look at things like uh, the meridians in 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 acupuncture and things like that for example in studies um when you place the needles into different parts of the body completely randomly um the 
the results are just as effective as if you put them into the places where the Chinese claim that the uh, that the meridians run. Um, so it seems in acupuncture, for example, that it's more a fact of using something that has a very physical effect, like putting something through the skin has more of an impact on the person experiencing it and therefore leads to a greater shift psychologically and probably then leads to like a kind of placebo effect. Yeah, like a placebo. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, you're in a very tricky area if you say, no, the meridians are correct because then so why does it not matter in the research where you put the needles, you know, it starts to get pretty tricky with things like that. Mm. Then there's been research, even, even, uh, some research I've indirectly been involved with where um, they've attempted to do things like put someone behind a screen and then like a chi, a Tai Chi master or a Qigong master, and then try to get them to um, send Qi through the screen. So someone else can feel it when the screen isn't there, the person says they can feel it. But when you put the screen in front, suddenly they, they, they become really inaccurate and they can't feel it anymore. Um, well, they say they can feel it, but they're wrong. They say it at the wrong times. Um, so it, these are the kinds of things that it becomes quite tricky with. Then if we get into the area of the out-of-body experience, um, when we get into the data again, like I was referencing earlier, um, we find that actually the majority of people are not experiencing an energy body they're experiencing either a, a sphere or a traveling consciousness, something like that. Um, yeah. Various. So, so that would be the astral body now, yeah, the, rather than the etheric etheric body. Well, that, that, that doesn't not, exist. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not. It, it doesn't match with any kind of replica energy body. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not, they're but experiencing something much more like a traveling consciousness what about the vibrational states that that you talk about um and that uh, certain certainly a certain percentage of people experience around um out of body experiences um i suppose i've associated them with that energy body um, yeah but that's an assumption isn't it <laughs> well what, what do you associate them with the physical body or well, I don't, uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure at this point. Um, but, but again, it, there's, there's a much higher percentage of people who experience other things as well. So we get into this whole thing of the vibrations is the only one that you really hear talked about, but people also experience a void state is fairly common. They also mm -hmm. experience buzzing noises. They yeah. experience um, or it's nothing nice. at all. So the vibrations are not as common as the literature would suggest. It is the most common, but it's not as common as it's not like I think, I think you said ten percent or something. Is that right? I'm not quite sure. I don't have ten percent. No, it would be higher than that. Higher than um, that. Okay. Um, but it's uh, it it depends. It it really yeah. really depends um, yeah. on on the individual. But the the, the point is w with this is people do experience vibrations, but we have to kind of ask, well, what could they be? You know, what it, it could it be an energy body vibrating? But if that's the case, so why? What does what does the void state mean? What does we, when people get into this sort of um, you know black 
um, non non imagery based environment what does what does that mean or why if it's an energy body vibrating why are they some people for example here talking or you know voices and things like that so the, the 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 types of i call them transitional stages so the types of transitional stages that people go through are different they're not all consistent with the idea of a moving body um but again the vibrations have been focused on because they are the ones that most consistently fit with this idea that we have a body and you know there's a silver cord and all this kind of again silver cord is close to zero in a lot of studies in terms of how many people experience it but in the esoteric literature it's you're told that no it definitely exists and da, 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 da. Um, but only a small percentage of people yeah, are actually experiencing yeah yeah sometimes it's zero in studies i mean so, one, one thing that i just just on that one thing i found very interested interesting as working working uh, i work with, as an anthropologist here with aboriginal people and um the literature there does suggest quite a common reporting of people don't call it the silver cord they usually refer to it as a as a hair string um mm. because that was the way people made made string right here um traditionally but um it's a very consistent, uh, uh, consistently reported in, in ethnographies when people talk about their, well, it's usually referred to in dreams, right? But uh, as an out-of-body sort of researcher, you'd interpret it that way. So um, I just found that quite interesting because that's completely unrelated to any esoteric tradition. Um, sure, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm, people definitely do experience the silver cord. Don't get me wrong. Some I've had people before misunderstand what I'm saying with this, and they think that I'm saying that no, it doesn't exist, and no, no one ever experiences it. Blah blah blah. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the level that it's reported that people do experience it, it is much lower than is generally believed. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So no, no, I get that. That sure. doesn't. That doesn't mean that no one experiences it, but but then you have to ask. So okay, if if people are experiencing it much less than is generally believed, you have to question whether it's as important in the experience as is generally claimed. Um, which is the you know. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to go to the actual experience, and instead of just go by the esoteric literature, okay, the esoteric literature talks all the time about silver cords and astral bodies and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so we can focus on that, but I would rather focus on the real experience. So start with the actually, experience. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Rather than the belief systems, start with the experience. So okay, what are the most important aspects of the real experience and so when you do that you find that uh, that actually this non-physical body or non-energy body type experience of a kind of independent consciousness or a or a sphere so almost like an orb kind of thing is reported as much if not more than than the energy body so if we go to the original experience what people really encounter then that takes us in a different direction. We start to say, okay, people are experiencing something quite different. They're trying, you know, and for example, a lot of people experience 360 vision as well. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, in my research, I started looking into 
what people experience in terms of visuals and the sensory aspects of the experience because that's been overlooked completely people just assume that what you experience in an out-of-body experience is the same as visually i mean is the same as what you experience in everyday life but we know that's not the case when you look at the evidence and you go to what people experience they will describe oh i could see in like i was seeing in sort of auras or i was seeing in two-tone colors duotone i was seeing in like blue and green or you know all these kinds of things so you once you start to get into that that also gives you clues to what might be really going on with the experience as well so so i, I think it's the way if we want to really know what the truth of these experiences is we have to start with the experience that's you know yeah, well, it certainly opens up. I mean, uh, it, it's kind of like the idea of a beginner's mind, right? That you you you're open to. Um, you, you don't step into it assuming you know everything. Sure. Um, yeah. 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 I think I wrote about that in the book as well, didn't I? <laughs> okay, I don't. I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, okay. But um, but you know, that's kind of yeah. That's definitely the the gist that comes from 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 that little bit I read before as well, right? From. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious. Uh, look, I don't know um, whether you touch on that uh, right now, but um, you know, you, you uh, and this is the this is kind of the the question of continuity of con continuity of uh, identity across lives, right, or across uh, from the physical to the non-physical. So, so I I kind of gather from what you've said, and also you talk about you know Rupert Sheldrake's morphic field. Uh, concept as a, as perhaps a useful model to understanding ourselves as non-localized consciousness. Um, uh, I I, I tend right? to I tend to lean more to I mean Rupert Sheldrake's idea is is fine as well. Yeah, I mean I tend to I tend to lean more towards something like Roger Penrose's Orcor model, which is um, basically look looking at something like quantum biology that there's okay. some kind of um, interconnection or non-local aspect to to biology um but at this point i think it's too early to get into like models and theories of what's going on we need to find once we find the mechanism for how psi or psychic abilities could work once we find that then i think we'll have a much better um, chance of explaining what's going on yeah okay uh, but but do you have a, a, a view on um, uh, I guess an individualized identity um, surviving the you know the death of the body and then having another birth into another physical body based on your experiences um, and your your sort of research? Well, the research is very strong in that area. I would say um, in terms of uh, past life memories in children, especially. Yeah. Um, Erlander Haraldson is a friend of mine. Um, I've arranged events for him and, um, he worked with Ian Stevenson in a lot of the original research and has, you know, continues to lecture on, um, past, past lives or, you know, uh, past life memories in children, etc. He did a lot of the field work in Sri Lanka and places like that, interviewing, okay interviewing children um on that topic um so i think the evidence is very strong but again again we get into this tricky area of um 
are they somehow picking up on information from from a larger consciousness um, in some way or some kind of interconnected consciousness, um, something along those lines, and sort of essentially just connecting to that information and then that's coming through in a in a child you know in in terms of their awareness um or is this literally an identity that's continuing on into a new form um so that's a question that i think is still quite open on that but but i think there are things that are really compelling like for example in Erlander Haraldson's uh research he found that for example, if someone was shot in a previous life, um, the child might bear a, a birthmark in the position that the that the wound happened. Um, so, if we're just dealing with some form of super psi, as they call it, you know, this idea of like a information psychically transmitted from one life into a child. Um, then that doesn't make sense in terms of why the child would have a physical deformity yeah. or or marking or something like that that corresponds to the death in the previous life. So that's very interesting. I think that definitely suggests that there's more going on than just information transfer between between a, a deceased person and a living person. So yeah, it's almost like um, a, like an inheritance, right? Like a biological inheritance of your own self, in a way. Yeah. So so I think that there is there is good evidence from the near death research from quite a few areas that when you when you look at them as a group, it's like a convergence of evidence that some kind of framework of consciousness or identity or uh, a schema if you like even within the skeptical sign uh, and sort of even in the skeptical world they will talk about a schema susan blackmore for example often references this idea of a schema being like the the construct of the self the 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 brain creates this identity this idea of self um and they refer to it as the schema um i think there's a good argument within the evidence we have that there's some kind of schema of of identity that continues from from the living person to another living or the deceased person to a to a living person or or even into some kind of um post-life kind of uh, environment um other level of reality something like that yeah. but it but we're we're really getting into very very abstract areas it's very hard to know exactly what those environments or realities or forms of consciousness would be i know rupert sheldrake i asked him personally about this once and i know that from his research and his um studies over many years he tends to think that it that it is quite an abstract um form of identity or consciousness it's not like a fully aware fully functioning kind of awareness and consciousness like we would have now um in our everyday life so um you mean the consciousness not. between lifetimes like so, yeah yeah so have you had um experiences you know you, you talk in your your book about the fact that there is an afterlife, but you, you sort of suggest that, uh, and I quite like that how you expressed it, how there, there are many 
the many stories, mythical stories about the long journey to the you know underworld or, or heaven or whatever, and how hard it is to get there, are kind of a metaphor for how difficult it might be to access dimensions mm. where deceased, you know, deceased people who are no longer physical are. So, um, have you had sort of experiences in those places, or has that been something that? Hasn't yeah, happened? yeah. Um, like I said, I don't say anything categorically, so I don't say there's definitely an afterlife i say that the evidence suggests there is <laughs> yeah um but what what i would say it, with that is um i've had experiences of levels that i think are there does seem to be a disconnect between people who are living and functioning and those kinds of levels so one that comes to mind is when i was in this very misty uh, cloudy looking environment very stereotypical in many ways of what we might imagine of a kind of you know um other otherworldly kind of environment um there was no up down no distinctive features no buildings nothing it was just all misty sort of cloudy looking and there was a group of a uh, about 150 140 150 people at a distance to me like about maybe 100 200 meters hard to say because there was no features in the environment but something like 100 to 200 meters away um and i could focus in on individuals and i could literally see their uh life reviews going through their heads it was it was amazing there was kind of um i was seeing glimpses of their memories and glimpses of their lifetimes and struggles and things that they were working through and I, I would look through the group and I would see like different things for a split second. I would see images from one person and then images from another person. And then one of them would sort of, I remember there was one with long hair who I assume was a woman, but you can't make that assumption really. Um, and she moved off into the cloud and sort of disappeared. And then there was a man in the front who was much more stressed and, seemed to be struggling with his life review and what was going on. Um, so I remember watching all of this from this distance, but I felt like I couldn't go any closer. It was almost like there was a threshold or a line. And if I crossed that line, if I went any closer, then it would almost be like I wouldn't be able to come back. Um and that's not unique to my experiences. I've heard other people describe similar things, um, that if you cross a certain point in that kind of experience, then that that's sort of like you can't come back kind of thing. Right. Um, and I tend to lean towards the idea that, that um, those really sort of afterlife-type environments are not easy to access and I, I i read i read people who describe going to them very easily and all of this kind of stuff but the quality and the veridical aspects seem to be missing so it tends to kind of make me a bit doubtful of yeah. of those experiences but if um but the interesting thing about that experience as well was after it happened i found that at the time i was having the out of body experience there was a crash in norway um, well, Svalbard, to be precise, which is an island owned by Norway, um, right up in the Arctic Circle. Um, 
and basically that 140, I think 141 people it was, um, died in this crash. And all of the details of what they looked like, where they were from, because they were all basically from, uh, they weren't from Norway, they were all of kind of Russian, um, I think maybe Ukrainian, they were that kind of area. Um, There were people from that area rather than from, Norway, yes. which was interesting because that's sort of how they'd appeared to me in this experience. So that was essentially almost like a veridical experience, but that happened on a different level of reality. So that that's a that's one that really maybe changed me and kind of opened me to the idea that okay, some kind of afterlife probably does exist, and then. I've I've also worked quite a bit with Penny Sartori, who has done some excellent research. She did a five-year study in the UK looking at um, near-death experiences, also um, uh, end-of-life visitations, those kinds yeah. of things as well, which also produced evidence for um, some form of afterlife. So. So end of yeah, life visitations are where people are just on their deathbed and then they recount seeing people, right, that they know deceased ancestors yeah. or something. Well, in her study, it was very interesting because there was one man who um, was visited by his sister um, and his sister was sort of telling him, you know, we're waiting for you kind of thing. Um, and he told this to his relatives. But the interesting thing was is um, he didn't know that his sister had actually uh, passed. Um, so he was talking about someone who he believed was still alive, um, but he said that he'd seen her as if she was dead, you know, but mm. it turned out she was dead. She died, like, shortly before. So Again, that kind of um, makes it somewhat veridical in the sense that it's, it, well, it is veridical yeah. for sure, yeah. yeah. And and it was it was the interesting thing about that as well is it was part of a prospective study. So prospective meaning that they that she went out um, and wrote down and collected all of the cases during that five years. So uh, one of the criticisms skeptics often make is they they all say things are anecdotal or. You know, they're just a story that's told and retold and retold, like after the event. Um, but studies like Penny Sartori's being prospective, they're not they're not anecdotal in that sense. They're there's their information that was collected at the time, the details are recorded, you know, completely fresh at that moment. Um, she was actually a part of the the hospital team, so she wasn't even like an independent person she was literally there recording all of the information um collecting it as it was all happening so um yeah, yeah. i think her yeah. her work is excellent i know it sounds really good was that published you know is there a book or something yeah she's got a few books out um okay. uh, wisdom of the near-death experience was her first one um so yeah definitely look up penisa tori she does really great work um, so there's another another thing that I was just like to touch on, and that is um, it kind of goes back to the the concept of the identity and and who we are. And 
I've noticed it. I noticed it in a number of your accounts, and I, I notice it in a lot of accounts, and I notice it in my own uh, in, in my own experiences at times that there is this sense that uh, so so you know people will often say I found myself in a certain place and I was floating around in a certain way, um, and there sometimes seems to be the sense um, during these ice experiences that mm. we're somehow acting outside of our control or that the experience is somehow being facilitated for us or um oh yeah that's a great uh, area to uh, yeah so i'd love to hear your take on that um i i, I think actually i i learned quite quickly that the best experiences are when you let them unfold um i tend to think the more you try to control the experience the more likely it is to sort of break down and and the experience to end really um so i tend to i tend to these days let them unfold and there does seem to be some some purpose or or sort of at least guidance or something you seem to be drawn in a particular direction or to a particular kind of event um I can't say that it's always clear what what the purpose of all the experiences are. Um, sometimes you might find yourself, I, I think probably some of them, even though you're drawn there, maybe I don't know that it always has a specific meaning or purpose. I think it's sometimes uh, just that maybe something's been on your mind or something like that. And then you're, or you've been in a particular location or that, the whole day and then you kind of get drawn there or something um but i think often there is some kind of deeper meaning to it i guess with like the soho bombing experience for example where i witnessed that whole event and i saw the explosion and everything within the outer body experience afterwards i was kind of racking my brain like why why would i witness that why why did i see that in the in the ove and I guess I, that took me on a whole journey of why am I, um, you know, why am I seeing that specifically? Um, and I thought, well, maybe it's my link with London. You know, I, I have a, a strong link with that city. I grew up there, lived there most of my life. Um, so I thought maybe it's something like that. But then there was a deeper level that, it actually started making me think about why someone act, um, will commit a terrorist attack, why they will act in that kind of violent way. And that led me to think more about compassion and nonviolence and actually led me into a more sort of spiritual um, outlook on life of not harming things and moving towards, you know, veganism and things like this, where I would um, try to reduce the amount of harm that I'm doing to other beings in the world. Um, so starting from an experience that might seem like a kind of violent, horrible thing to see um, actually led me on this journey that kind of led to a much greater sense of peace and mm. nonviolence in my life. So um, by the purpose... On it by the sounds of it. Yeah. So I think the purpose sometimes isn't obvious, but sometimes over time the the meaning of these experiences 
will kind of reveal itself sometimes decades later i mean even recently i revisited my diaries because i keep diaries i have kept a diary since i was 14 of my experiences so i revisited some experiences that i had 20 years ago and i realized in one of them for example i'd overlooked um, a piece of information uh, when i was researching it 20 years ago <laughs> so i then went and you know researched now 20 years on the yeah. that piece of information and it gave me a deeper understanding of the experience i'd had all that time ago um so yeah, yeah things like no, that that's can great happen. and that's a really great you know plug for keeping diaries um oh yeah it's it's really important it's 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 essential because the human memory is really fallible um you will muddle things up get them back to front you know like uh, think something happened in a completely different order or you know we are all fallible on that level human beings are not the greatest with memory and all that so it's it's very important to keep detailed records i think it really helps um if you ever want to write them or share them as well i think it really helps it helped with me writing both my books to be able to go back and look at the original accounts of i mean obviously you maybe don't always write every detail in in the diary entry and that can be annoying sometimes but um even having some elements of the experience noted down is is very helpful yeah yeah and it's also a great practice to help us remember um you know to build to build that habit of remembering what happened so it's certainly in my case most of these things happen when i'm from a sleep state so um mm. if i don't write them down they go very quickly okay um yeah yeah and look the other thing i wanted to ask you and you kind of alluded to that already is is the benefits of pursuing obes right there's a there's a really nice passage in your book i'll just read that as well um you say the obe will change you if you allow it it can bring about a greater sense of peace compassion and even comprehension of others quite simply because you start to see others in the light of your own self you stop seeing all life as separate and begin to see even the darkest and most fearful aspects of our humanity as the result of rational cause therefore you may find that the desire to condemn or judge others vanishes i feel that the ob has made we view the negative traits and actions of others as arising from a cause lying within the personal landscape of the person involved and while i may avoid his or her negative behaviors i do not see the person as evil or in need of punishment hmm. so well so, that that yeah. alludes to what i was saying about the soho bombing i guess so so that was really the <laughs> profound experience um uh, but it sounds like you went, you know, it's more than just going, you know, not, not just, but it's more than, than touching into, into uh, you know, nonviolence and, and, and changing your own behavior. It sounds like you've also, it's really helped you reach a, a space of, um, I guess, equanimity in, in, in seeing other humans. Um, I, I, I think, I think all, all these experiences, I think the thing that, yeah, the thing that comes to mind is this sense of interconnection, you know, this sense of, uh, that everything, not, not just humans, but everything, you know, the earth, the animals, the, well, we are animals. Um, <laughs> but you know, everything is all, yeah. it's all sort of interconnected. So 
um, to sort of be a, abusive or exploitative of any of it um, becomes, you know, you become aware of that. If it, you know, I mean, no, I'm not saying I'm perfect or anyone is, you know, we, we all kind of make mistakes and do things we regret and all the rest of it. And, but, but I think the thing is, is those kinds of experiences, they make that so kind of central in your awareness that when you, you know, when you do a certain action, it kind of, you, you sense the the greater impact of that. And so I think it does, it definitely creates a kind of inner calm, I think, and a, a sense of, um, a sense of feeling that there is a, there is a sort of oneness to things. I'm not, I, I, I struggle with the word oneness. It's maybe wholeness is a better word. Um, it's it's not that everything has to be the same or or anything yeah. like that, but I think that um, it's actually almost like a valuing of diversity. It's almost like seeing um, seeing the the beauty and in, indifference. And I think a lot of fears and a lot of hate and a lot of issues come from our fears of the unknown or or from difference. You know, if you even the motivation of the man who did the the bombing in Soho was. You know, he was trying to kill gay men because he, because he hated the fact that they were gay. I mean, it's so ludicrous to me. But, um, but if you, if you think about that, it's it's this fear of difference. It's this hatred of difference. You know, so I think that once you start to experience in a in an OBE this sense of I am, you know, connected to everything. Then and and also some of my experiences. I had another experience which is very much like the painting, the Universal Mind Lattice by Alex Gray. If people know Alex Gray's art, um, look up his painting, the Universal Mind Lattice. It's like a huge energy fountain, basically. Um, and I went into that in the out of body experience, and it it, it was like experiencing the minds or the consciousness of. Uh, you know, an, an unfathomable amount of uh, people. I just sort of, you know, completely lost all comprehension. It was like millions and millions of minds all at once, you know, just kind yeah. of uh, just experiencing that on a, on a huge level. So um, I think that's, uh, I think that's part of that whole thing as well, that you, if you've experienced something like that, you've experienced like, feeling the thoughts or the mind or something else of another person, then it becomes very, very difficult to sort of judge them in the same way that you might have done before. Yeah. Yeah. That um, sounds profound, that experience. And how do you find, so one of the things that, that I've had uh, sometimes said is, uh, you know, why, why would I want to go out of the body? You know, I'm a human being, I've got a physical body. And there's, there's, there's a bit of a tension, uh, well, there is for me, and, and uh, I think there is a bit in, in the so-called, let's say, spiritual community between a sort of embodied approach to spirituality and focus on, uh, you know, afterlife or, or out-of-body states. And, uh, I mean, you, you know, you sound extremely grounded and, and embodied, and I was just wondering how you... Um, yeah, how do you view that, and, and I don't know how do you how do you experience how do you find ways of bringing those those kinds of transcendental you know experiences that, that really take you beyond your localized consciousness to bring them back into the body in a solid way. 
That's a good question, actually, because in many ways I don't see them as separate. Um, I see them as extensions or continuations of each other. Um, it's maybe just my idea of what the physical is extends further than what most people's idea of what the physical is, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, a bit like I was talking about the psychic stuff, that there's a continuum, that you know you have like a maybe a minor impression um on a psychic level is sort of one end of the spectrum and a full out-of-body experience is the other end of the spectrum well i almost see like physical reality is one end of the spectrum and maybe those afterlife levels are like the other end of the spectrum but that's but they're not there's no separation point on that continuum they're they're all a part of that same line um that's sort of how I see it. So an out-of-body experience, I I tend to see it that maybe our consciousness is what you you may know in like near-death experience research, for example, there's this idea of the brain is more like a filter or a or a receiver of consciousness. There's this popular idea that um when we have an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience we actually are then accessing the full potential of consciousness where we're accessing this interconnected realm or this interconnected level of consciousness. Um, but the idea within that is that that's actually the the true nature of our consciousness is this vast interconnected framework rather than the small area that we perceive in our own day-to-day -day reality. The same way we see an image of reality based upon you know the visible light spectrum that we're able to perceive but maybe the uh but we know for a fact that the visible that the light spectrum is vast the electromagnetic light spectrum is vast compared to the small sliver that humans are able to perceive um and i think that consciousness might be similar that we're able to perceive or to experience or understand a small sliver of the bigger picture of what consciousness is. Um, and so in that sense, I, I think that the physical might not be the beginning. It might be the pinnacle of conscious experience or, or of these levels. It might literally be that, you know, it, it's more and more abstract until it becomes more solidified in a, in a physical form. It might go that way around yeah. rather than the other way around. Um, you know, I think in most spiritual traditions, there's this idea that it's all about going to the non-physical. And in that sense, you know, I'm not, I don't just follow as, as it's clear, I think from talking to me, I don't just follow this, um, well-worn path of how spirituality should be like for me, for me, for example, you know, doing a small action in everyday life is far more important than sort of talking about spirituality or doing meditation or something like that you know um uh, when i say an action i mean an action that has an impact beyond yourself yeah 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 um so so yeah I, I so i think the the physical is actually should not be demeaned in any way and i think um the physical is at the core of it i mean i think often we have so many negative attitudes about the body about sexuality about all of these kinds of things and i think that 
those have been really unhelpful throughout history and they have only led to kind of pain and suffering for millions of people and i i think we need a new model of spirituality that's based much more on not knowing and being okay with not knowing and being kind of more of an explorer and like you said the beginner's mind i think you know taking taking things as if you're experiencing them for the first time and trying to keep open and keep learning and keep uh, keep seeing what the potential of life has has to offer and the potential of these experiences i think that's at the core of what it's all about in my understanding of spirituality and you know i'm not saying anyone has to believe what i'm saying <laughs> no but i love that it's it's great and it's also unfortunately where we're going to have to and I had hoped we'd get a chance to, uh, you know, describe a couple of techniques to people, but we're um, we're out of time. And I really encourage anybody interested in um, pursuing their own out-of-body travel or independent consciousness experiences to check out your book, Navigating the Out-of-Body Experience. And um, and where can they? Where else can they find you, Graham? What's your website or any other details people might? Before want to... I tell that, I'll just say one thing about techniques. Um, I think the the greatest secret with techniques is don't focus on techniques. Um, focus on making a shift and a change in your everyday sense of self and your everyday life. Um, create a solid foundation. Um, from which the experience can arise. The techniques are just the cherry on the cake, if you like. Okay. Well, in that case, maybe briefly elaborate what you mean by making a shift in your everyday sense of self. That's... Um, I mean that basically what, mo- what most people do wrong is they go out to work, they do their day-to-day like you know, mundane stuff, thinking about whatever it is they're doing, they're sort of you know, making money, paying the bills, all of that kind of stuff, and that dominates the majority of their day. And then they'll spend maybe some more time watching TV or something, which then also dominates more of their awareness. And then they'll go, oh, I should do some OBU practice. <laughs> and they'll, they'll do like 20, 30 minutes of that. But they've built up this complete overwhelming level of distraction um, during, during the day away from that. So I think the key is to actually start to incorporate other things, um, positive practices, um, things that focus you on your spirituality and on your development of your consciousness and different ideas so it's it's more about once you build that into your life um especially focused on obes and consciousness development the more you incorporate all of those things day to day then the technique is you know i use a very 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 simple technique you know i just use a sort of focus technique um and most of the people who teach out of body and do out of body experiences most of them actually did it with a simple technique but they were but they had all this other stuff in place to some degree so i think uh i think that's the key really so i I think that's what i would say about um techniques that people focus on them too much and they don't focus on the bigger picture the the holistic approach yeah yeah the field Um, in which it all unfolds right the field in which your life unfolds yeah. yeah Exactly, yeah. So my website is just grahamnichols.com, Nichols with two L's. 
um, and they can find me on Facebook or um, that kind of stuff, the usual. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you, and you run workshops, right? You have the books, you run workshops as well? Or? Um, well, at the moment with the with the coronavirus and the social distancing, yeah. the the best Not thing so is I have an online I have an online course, and I also do um, internet based uh, personal tuition OBE coaching, basically. So okay. um, they can do that via via like uh, you know online with a cam, basically. So that's a easy way to to learn. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. So yeah, I so enjoyed our conversation and thanks again for, you know, making Me the too. time. You're very welcome. Thank you. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune seeing us out is another one from Axel Tesliff. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies. <laughs>